Welcome to our podcast on Research Matters, hosted by UNICEF's Office of Research at Innocenti in Florence, Italy. I'm Kathleen Sullivan, Communication Specialist with UNICEF Innocenti, and I'm joined today by Carrie Albright, our Chief of Knowledge Management and Research Facilitation at UNICEF Innocenti, who oversees the Best of UNICEF Research competition each year. Today we'll be discussing the Best of UNICEF Research 2017, which highlights 12 of this year's most innovative and groundbreaking research for children around the world. For some background, the Best of UNICEF Research competition is now in its fifth year, having kicked off in 2013, in an effort to recognize and highlight outstanding pieces of research commissioned or supported by UNICEF staff. Today we're talking to Carrie to discuss the Best of UNICEF Research and to get an overview of this year's winning research. We'll also speak to some UNICEF program managers who led the groundbreaking research for two of our top research reports in Nepal and East Asia and the Pacific. So to start us off, I'd like to jump right into a bit of background on the Best of UNICEF Research. Carrie, welcome. Thank, Thank you, you for joining us. Could you tell us a little bit about your background working on the Best of UNICEF Research and how the competition was conceived and why? Sure, Kathleen. Um, well, first of all, thanks for inviting me here today. Um, I also should state up front that this is not just all down to me. It's an Innocenti-wide effort. Um, and it's a pretty intensive process, actually. It takes much of the year. Um, and whilst I oversee it, we also have a dedicated intern and a lot of colleagues who do um, much of the heavy lifting. Um, so it was an idea conceptualized by my predecessor um, for three things, really. Um, the first one was really to help build a culture of quality research at UNICEF and to recognize and reward a job well done by colleagues. Um, it was also to better capture and understand the, the very wide range of types of research going on across UNICEF. And thirdly, it was about facilitating and sharing good practice and lesson learning across and beyond UNICEF. So how it works. Um, each year, we issue an open call across um, UNICEF's country and regional offices, headquarter units and our national committees. And we ask them to nominate their best research pieces uh, for consideration in consultation with their representative or head of office. Just to cut in, what yeah. time of year does this usually start when you, when you do Normally it? January, sort of late December, early January is when we issue the, the first call. Okay, great. Um, so these pieces of research are either conducted by UNICEF staff themselves or in partnership um, with research organizations, governments, etc., um, so then we do an initial sort of quality screening to make sure that entries meet the, the relevant minimum criteria. And after that, we're normally left with around about 80, 80 entries. Um, an important point that is the dedicated Office of Research for UNICEF and also the judges, um, Innocenti researchers aren't allowed to submit entries. Um, so then we group the submissions by sectors themes um, and teams of cross-cutting Innocenti staff then review the entries. And it's normally against um, five set criteria. So it's how the research is conceptualized, uh, its potential for impact, methodology, uh, the innovation and originality, and finally, the writing and presentation. Um, and in this year's exercise, we also formally assessed reporting on ethical standards. And then we give feedback to each submitter. Then the internal Innocenti review team um, nominates their top two. Um, and that's moderated by a cross-office meeting chaired by our director. And we then end up with a list of about 10 or 12 finalists, which we send to an external panel uh, comprised of academics, and, and it's normally chaired by a senior former UNICEF staff member. 
Um, and we feel, you know, from experience that this balance allows both for a, an independent assessment of research quality, um, but also make sure that it's relevant for policy and programs at UNICEF. Um, and then after that, the external panel select their top three or so um, entries from amongst the finalists um, and nominate them for additional special mention. Um, and those final winners um, get to present their research every year at an annual meeting of uh, UNICEF's evidence specialists, so-called the, the dream meeting, to share the findings amongst their peers. Um, so that's the sort of technical side, but at the same time, there's a very long parallel process with our communications colleagues here, um, which obviously involves writers, editors, designers, etc., all culminating in the final report, which is normally released towards the end of every year. Okay, and, and just a quick question. You mentioned that you give feedback during this process. Mm. What kind of feedback are you usually giving them? And, and have they said that this in turn is helping them uh, to produce uh, better reports? Sure. I mean, when we first started off, it was, it was voluntary. People had to write to us if they wanted their feedback. Um, but we honestly, we got so many requests that we've just decided to do it in the last couple of years as a, as a matter of default. Um, so it's basically, it's the anonymized internal reviews um, against those criteria, um, as well as, you know, two or three things that the research did particularly well and areas where it could be improved, and that's sent back in writing. Great. And have they, have they been really happy about the feedback they're getting? Yeah, normally. Um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit in a minute about, um, we did a, a best of uh, UNICEF five years survey which we sent out recently and we had some really interesting feedback about how people are using the exercise. Great. Okay, so as manager of this competition and publication, what are some of the emerging research areas that you find most interesting in Best of UNICEF Research 2017? So especially this year, have you seen any emerging themes, trends, areas in research that are a break from previous year's reports? Yeah, well, what's most interesting for me is that, um, as always, what stands out is the sheer range and variety of research going on across UNICEF, um, all of which is highly relevant to advancing UNICEF's work in the field. Um, so in some years, you know, quantitative research has featured more strongly. Um, last year, qualitative research was particularly noticeable. Um, but in this year's forthcoming publication, I think the thing that really stands out for me is innovative approaches, um, as well as, I guess, a clear focus on, on tackling very clear evidence gaps for children. Um, and I guess while the, while the specific geographic or thematic spread tends to vary year on year, what we're also seeing this year is um, both an increase in quality in the research being produced across UNICEF, as well as a, as a much greater um, attention, I guess, to, to ethical standards. Um, so I mentioned earlier that we, we had conducted this um, separate best, five years of best of UNICEF research survey. Um, and, and some really interesting things emerged um, out of that in terms of what UNICEF staff are doing with this. Um, so they're either, you know, they're replicating studies in their own region, um, they're seeking collaborations with, with research being conducted in other offices, um, and they're also giving examples of how they're drawing upon that research to inform their own programming needs. Um, and, uh, you know, in response to your earlier question, several of them also responded, saying that they have a much better understanding now of what good quality ethical research looks like. And importantly as well, that they've got increased confidence in doing research um, because of this enhanced recognition from amongst their peers. That's great, and especially because that's what 
we do here at Innocenti is, is work on research facilitation and training on improving research quality. Sure, exactly. So it's part of the yeah. aim. Okay, so which research reports would you say from this year's batch uh, stood out to you as especially innovative, groundbreaking, or key for pushing the envelope of research for children? Well, I know you're going to speak to a couple of the, the, the winning report authors in a minute, um, but I guess thinking about what else was in the report this year, um, we see other examples of research tackling current and really challenging um, societal or political issues. So, for example, there's one piece of research which is using a really innovative user-centered design approach, um, engaging a whole wide range of stakeholders to tackle the problem of you know, high levels of students dropping out of schools in poor settings in Serbia, which is obviously a, an issue with you know, clear global resonance. Um, we also see novel and innovative research conducted in collaboration with the private sector. So, um, for example, there's a piece of research conducted by the Mexico Country Office looking at the child rights impacts of the hotel industry in Mexico and what can be done to improve the lives of the affected children there. And then I guess a third interesting and, and highly topical piece of research um, is one commissioned by the French National Committee where they conducted qualitative interviews with um, unaccompanied migrant children who are residing in, in makeshift camps in northern France. And they unearthed some quite horrific stories, actually, of the violence and trafficking that they'd endured along their route. Okay, so would you say there's any research you felt was really obvious and long overdue that you're really happy to see get reported on this year? Um, I mean, I guess, obviously, it's an interesting time in, in the development world as we're moving into you know, the new sustainable development goals, which particularly focus on leaving no one behind or, or um, tackling the hardest to reach. So um, this piece of research in South Africa, um, I think, looking at these was very interesting. And they were trying to better understand the reasons why, despite the government introducing a child support grant, which gave really direct financial payments um, to families with children under 18, with the purpose of, of encouraging social and economic inclusion. Um, but despite all that, take up amongst those who needed it most was still not universal. Um, so this piece of research aimed to, to really identify the, the very practical blockages and barriers and how to overcome those. Um, another one um, which I found interesting was learning from positive deviance, which isn't a term we use a lot in international development, or so-called uh, deviant behaviours. So in this case, um, looking at schools in Namibia to try and identify the reasons why some schools performed better than others, um, despite receiving exactly the same resources, uh, being exposed to exactly the same external contents and challenges as, as others in the community. And then I guess it was also very interesting to see um, examples of UNICEF research in areas which everyone recognizes as, as global evidence gaps. So, for example, children with disabilities and special needs in both India and Palestine um, in, a pro in applying approaches not traditionally used in international development, um, so behavioral insights to try and better predict Ebola prevention behaviors in Guinea-Bissau, um, others in sort of challenging received wisdom in, in rice fortification techniques to combat malnutrition in Cambodia, and then finally, I guess, in developing a new instrument to get a much better handle on national child protection expenditure um, as piloted in Indonesia in order to be able to compare spending within and between countries over time. 
Wow, so many interesting examples yeah. from this year's reports all <laughs> over the world. Speaking of, how, how would you say that this year's Best of UNICEF Research competition informs where we are globally, both within UNICEF and externally, in terms of our gaps for research in children? You mentioned disabilities mm. um, specifically. Any, any other areas you think are, are presenting themselves as, as areas we need to do more research in? Well, I mean, uh, thinking about the purpose of research, uh, you know, as a starting point, it should really be about informing the the strategic direction and priorities of the organization. It should provide evidence for our policies and our programming or question policies or practice practices that seem to be um, detrimental to children. It should propose alternative options and, and obviously identify emerging issues that could impact upon current or future generations of, of children and their caregivers. Um, and it's interesting that as we're moving into our new strategic plan period for, for 2018 to 2021, um, evidence is explicitly outlined within that as um, an explicit driver of change for children. Um, but as an agency, uh, how we're operating is also changing as countries become, um, as more countries achieve a middle income status. So hence our work as a knowledge broker becomes more and more important and the status of research and evidence uh, within that accordingly. And, you know, this publication, I think, shows some of the, the best and the most innovative pieces of research coming out of UNICEF and the last strategic plan. In this new strategic plan, um, I think we need to think more about learning from these, looking at scaling up, looking at system strengthening, um, etc., as new kind of core cross-cutting themes. Um, I mean, this is just one one of the sorts of evidence products that we produce at Innocenti um, and, and uh, indeed elsewhere across UNICEF, which explicitly aims to identify evidence gaps for children. But I think the the real value of best of unicef research it can help highlight you know where what we're doing is working where it could be considered for for replication in other regions or indeed other sectors or agencies beyond unicef um and i guess you know some of the feedback that we had from this survey this year which was also really interesting was thinking about how in future we may also want to capture um more about the costs of the research look at whether the research has benefited local capacity um, and also, you know, by so doing, enhance the potential for uptake of research. And also looking back over our, our back catalogue, so to speak, to try and better identify what the um, longer term impacts of the research have been. And all of those, I think, we see as, as important new dimensions. Great. Thank you. So next, we're talking to two of our winners of this year's Best of UNICEF Research Competition, Grace Akioli in the East Asian Pacific Office for UNICEF, and Ashish KC in Nepal about their Best of UNICEF Research 2017 reports. Could you give us a little preview, having reviewed each of their reports more in-depth, and tell us why they made it into the Best of UNICEF Research this year? Sure, I'd be happy to. So the the APRO report, the East Asia Pacific Regional Office report, um, formal title "Diversion, Not Detention." So the committee on the on the rights of the child has has frequently emphasised the need to put mechanisms in place for alternatives to to pre and post trial detention for children who are in conflict with the law, but there isn't really very much documentation or analysis about the successful practices 
that also are compliant with international standards of, of human and child rights. So this study, really detailed and comprehensive study, um, covers 26 countries across the East Asia Pacific uh, region. Um, and it looks at the laws, the policies and the practices of uh, diversion, an area where we haven't seen much progress in Asia or indeed globally, um, and where far too many children are still being detained in prisons worldwide. Um, this is clearly a, a big neglected area of research. Um, but the panel found that the value lies both in the fact that it was so detailed and ambitious, but also the fact that it was um, such a detailed cross-country comparison of, of legal and policy gaps meant that they were able to come up with some really highly context-specific policy recommendations. So I called Grace Akioli from UNICEF's East Asia and Pacific office to ask her more about the report in more detail. The report titled Diversion Not Detention, a study on diversion and other alternative measures for children in conflict with the law in East Asia and the Pacific, coordinated by UNICEF's East Asia and the Pacific office, asks to what extent are countries offering alternatives to detention for children in conflict with the law? Let's hear from Grace what she had to say about the report. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about this. We're really interested in learning more about the report Diversion Not Detention, a study on diversion and other alternative measures for children in conflict with the law in East Asia and the Pacific, and its selection for Best of UNICEF Research this year. And it's also one of our few regional reports. To get started, uh, I'd love to ask you a little bit about the background of this research. What were the drivers behind studying detention, diversion, and alternatives for children in conflict with the law? Yeah, that's right. Thank you again for the acknowledgement of it as one of the best in UNICEF research. As you know, UNICEF has been advocating for juvenile justice for a long period of time, since the 1990s, I believe. And we're always saying, you know, Children should, detention should be a matter of last resort and for the shortest possible time, right? But still, when we go to many countries and many countries still have children in detention, you still have a lot of children in conflict with the law and we don't know how to deal with those children who commit crimes or are accused of or charged with crime. In our region, for example, many of our countries still have um, very low minimum age of criminal responsibility. They also have, on the other hand, we also have some judges, we have some legislative framework that allows diversion. But other than that, they, the judges would say, yes, we, want, we don't want to put children in detention, but tell us what we have to do. Show us some good practices that it is possible to have alternative measures for children. But we don't ask the other question of what are we doing? What is it that the law says the government should do at the national and local level? What should we do? What should we come up with as programs so that children are given the proper intervention, they don't commit crimes? So here is an attempt to put, to document the good practices that exist in our region, in our neighboring countries, in East Asia and the Pacific, which both have formal justice as well as informal justice system and how can we tap those existing mechanisms um, as alternative measures for children in conflict with the law. Mm, great. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot, there's so much there. I'm wondering if you could help to explain a little bit what challenges you faced because this was regional. 
and, and challenge would be the topic itself is already sensitive on its own. Some governments might not want to be criticized, and that's why we also put it in the perspective of you know documenting good practices, um, whether they exist or not, and whether they are um, really being practiced in not just one occasion, um, but consistently across across the process of the justice system. Um, it's also um, a challenge about definition of terms. Some are very, um, we found out in the course of the study that we are actually talking about different alternative measures. And uh, that would be a challenge of sensitivity of the, of the report itself. Um, we could have been, you know, more detailed and critical in our assessment. We do have some country case analysis that could go with it. Uh, but then um, the challenge is whether the government would also accept uh, the findings that were in the report. What impact would you say this research has had, if any, um, on any of the countries in the region? And um, are there any next steps for research in this area planned? In Indonesia, they just recently passed the law on justice a few years ago, and they are now using this book as an example of what exists and what could have could be the programs that they can put up under this um, under the new law. We also have some like Timor Leste who have been using it as um, as a reference to say that we now have to pass the law on juvenile justice. The law, the drafting of the law started in 2004. It has been long, and we have been cited in the report as one of the few countries that do not provide diversion. Regionally also, we have been engaged with the ASEAN, which is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, and we launched this report um, in June this year during the Asia-Pacific Council on Juvenile Justice. Um, and um, one of our uh, countries in the ASEAN is actually um, trying to advocate for the passage of an ASEAN Declaration on Juvenile Justice. As for Continued research, do you have any plans to expand or follow up on this? So one of the findings in our study and you know, under the limitation and scope would be um, we covered uh, children above the minimum age of criminal responsibility in, in these countries as defined by their law. So one of the recommendations both from the study and the consultation validation meeting that um, arose from the study is um, what do we do now for serious, uh, serious and grave offenses? Thank you, Grace, for that detailed look at East Asia and the Pacific's report, Diversion, Not Detention. Moving on, uh, get another primer from Kerry on another one of our top research reports from this year coming out of Nepal on helping babies breathe. The report on helping babies breathe from Nepal really also... Yeah, another really important. fascinating one. Um, so here, you know, a, a little-known fact. Um, uh, there are around um, 1.2 million stillbirths worldwide each year, which occur um, both after the onset of labor and then a further 1 million babies who die during the, their first day of life. Um, so these statistics really drive home, I think, the, the importance of high-quality care at the time of birth and just after. So globally, um, there are around 10 million babies who are born not breathing every year. And this first minute after birth, the, the so-called golden minute, um, gives a really vital window for, for resuscitating them. 
So with this in mind, the UNICEF Nepal Country Office, um, in collaboration with, with Uppsala University and other partners, um, they funded research which tested a really basic neonatal resuscitation protocol um, called Helping Babies Breathe in a, in a hospital in Kathmandu. Um, and the results were dramatic, actually, with not only a, a high potential for saving lives, but also for actually improving operational performance in, in neonatal units in district hospitals. And the panel here thought that the, not only was the research really well designed and conducted, but actually it also addresses a really high burden problem which challenges current practices and, and mindsets in hospitals worldwide. Um, and the reviewers also felt that it had a really high potential for, for being replicated elsewhere as it was explicitly designed um, as a low-cost intervention um, for countries where, where financial resources are often really constrained. Great. Thank you for that brief preview. So I was able to reach Ashish KC from UNICEF's Nepal office, and we talked about Nepal's report on reducing perinatal mortality in Nepal using Helping Babies Breathe. The report asks, how effective are helping babies breathe practices in reducing stillbirths and newborn deaths? Let's hear from Ashish what he has to say in more detail about the report and the research behind it. So this, uh, this research work that was done in Nepal was started back in 2012. In Nepal, around 60% of the newborn uh, babies die within the first uh, 28 days of life. 60%? Uh, yeah, 60%. Within the first 20 days of life? 28 days of life. So 28. First, okay, the yeah, first month. First month of life. And uh, that's called the newborn period. Right. And as we progress in the child survival work, the, the number of deaths that are, that are taking place in the first 28 days hasn't reduced so much. So we have a lot of reduction in the other five mortality rates, like deaths due to pneumonia, diarrhea. Death due to the newborn period or during the newborn period hasn't reduced so much in the last 15 years. And this is not only case for Nepal, but also for the, the, whole, the whole world. The number of deaths within the first year of life, that's the death that occurs during the first year of birth, is around 50% of the total newborn deaths. And these deaths are, uh, are preventable. And these uh, deaths uh, takes place uh, are due to babies who do not breathe uh, at birth. How to reduce the newborn death? during the first year of life, and especially to ensure that those babies who do not breathe, how to make them breathe. So back in 2009, they set up a, uh, a group called Global Developmental Alliance to have a protocol called Helping Babies Breathe, which basically trained the health workers on how to improve the, uh, the, the care for babies who do not breathe at birth. What we had done in Nepal was we used the same protocol that was developed back in 2009 in, in one hospital, which has a, a mortality setting. So the whole idea with helping babies breed was to reduce the number of deaths that takes place uh, during the new period, and especially during the first year of life, and also those babies who die within the mother's womb as stillborn. Health workers would, uh, would not only get trained, but also implement those skills in their daily routines and have five elements or five components that they would use on a on a regular basis so that they, they would improve their competency and yeah, and then improve their skills on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm seeing that the baseline started in 2012. Yeah. You're collecting data on this and then and then after the training you saw the mortality rates in the first day of life drop yeah. from 52% 
to 19 percent. Yeah, exactly. And then for stillbirth rates, it went from 90 percent to 32 percent. Yeah. So that's quite a significant drop. Yeah. To show how effective the Helping Babies Breathe initiative is. Can you talk a little bit more about the conclusions of the research and, and why it's so important? After this work that we completed, uh, we started to scale this up uh, in 12 more hospitals um, uh, based on learnings on reduction in mortality and also based on learning that uh, there's improvement in performance of health workers using those, in, uh, those Helping Babies Breathe initiative. So right now we are doing it in 12 uh, hospitals, which are secondary level hospitals, district hospitals, and also the peripheral hospitals. So the whole idea is that we want to take this up to areas which are basically where a lot of newborn dies because of the poor quality of care at the time of birth, and where there's only one health workers to take care of both mothers and the newborns. So you're targeting the most vulnerable exactly. places right now. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, uh, and we have even designed this this 12, 12 hospital scale up in a very systematic way in evaluating those uh, processes. So we are using a cluster randomized control approach, where we are using a stepwise models where we would evaluate the change in the mortality over the period of time in the different hospitals and the effect of the Helping Babies Breath initiative um, over the period of time. So hopefully, in the next two years, we would get results on how the effect has been in the scale-up process and inform the government on how to further scale up this helping babies breathe in other hospitals. What would you say is the ultimate goal that every hospital has to help baby breathe uh, initiative? Yeah, so so the whole goal is that um, every hospital implements the Helping Babies Breathe initiative mm -hmm. uh, with uh, certain tools and techniques that we have devised and developed and also add on new interventions such as uh, kangaroo mother care or infection prevention or treatment into their, into their hospital systems where they would reduce mortality associated with those which are preventable causes like infection and also preterm birth complication as well as babies who do not breathe at birth. Uh, related to that, would you say there have been any spin-off studies that have come out of this research on preventing stillbirths and helping babies breathe? Yeah, one of the challenges which has remained in at the global arena as well as with our study has been <clears throat> reducing the deaths uh, during the uh, during the mother's womb, so the stillbirth, uh, stillbirth that takes place. What we have seen is uh, with the use of the helping baby breathe, and also uh, if we have better care at the time of birth or during delivery, then we have a high chance of reducing stillbirth uh, in those settings um, where the where there's high stillbirth rate and then where the where the care is poor. So we improve care at the time of birth, we improve uh, the skills of health workers and provide all the adequate required elements for them to provide care. And we use not only newborn mortality, but also we reduce the stillbirth rates. Thank you. I mean, that gives us a lot of background on why this is significant, because more children are surviving now. Well, congratulations on Best of UNICEF Research recognition and on the success of the research and implementation of these trainings. Thank you. Thank you, Carrie, Grace, and Ashish for joining us today to discuss the Best of UNICEF Research 2017. Thanks especially to Carrie for the great overview of what's in this year's 
rundown of the top 12 research reports to come out of the UNICEF offices around the world, and to Grace and Ashish for helping to unpack the reports in detail coming out of East Asia and the Pacific and Nepal. Please download the Best of UNICEF Research report today at unicef-irc.org. And for more updates on Best of UNICEF Research, please follow us on Twitter at UNICEF Innocenti and visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash UNICEF Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me.